0: Welcome to Founder Radio. I'm your host, Hugo. In this podcast, you'll hear in-depth conversations with the globe's most exciting company founders. We'll talk about their ideas, their successes, their challenges, and their learnings along the way. At Founder Radio, we celebrate founders. and We believe that innovative founders are critical to deal with the challenges humans face. They are society's explorers and work in uncertainty to expand our practical knowledge and every day. Building something from scratch requires creativity, intelligence, conviction and endurance. Get inspired and learn from those that are changing the world. Welcome, everyone dear listeners i'm excited about today's episode we're talking to sophia Hummelman. she's a co-founder of recarbon and recarbon is a co2 direct air capture company planned life since september 2022 it's a young company it plans to launch a plan in 2028 that can absorb 50,000 tons of co2 per year and has just announced a partnership with deep sky in canada to build a smaller version of that plant she's worked in the financial sector at jp morgan and ifund Paris, London, and Amsterdam, and has an econometrics degree from the Erasmus University. Rotterdam. Sophia, welcome. How are you?
1: Thank you. I'm very well.
0: Great to have you. Let's dive right in and start with the basics. What does your company do?
1: Yeah, sure. So ReCarbon, as you said, is a direct air capture company. But what does that actually mean is that we filter the outside air and we extract the CO2 out of it. And then you're left with pure stream of CO2, and then with that, you can do all sorts of things.
0: (laughs) That's super clear. Thank you. And one of the reasons I find this super interesting is that in my mind, in the public debate about climate change and, and CO2 problems, it's a lot about CO2 reduction, which, of course, like should play a huge role. But it feels to me that direct air capture is a bit underrepresented and under discussed. What's your take on that and where do you see this going and where do you think direct air capture is, say, in 2050?
1: Yeah, I think it's like a very uh, common topic we discuss almost every day. But indeed, a lot of the talk about climate is about reducing our emissions, which 100% should happen. And yeah, we support that fully. But indeed, what people are not talking about enough is the need for the removal of CO2. And whereas a lot of people say, okay, let's focus on reducing now and then the removal is not that important, we would actually argue, okay, we need to reduce now, but we also need to start working on technologies that are going to be able to remove by 2050. And yeah, from now until 2050, we need all that time in order to develop these technologies to the best of their abilities to be able to remove at full capacity at 2050. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And it looks very much like not be able to even remotely meet the targets that we've set for reduction right so that almost makes a direct air capture a necessity to get close does that make sense to you as well
1: it does it's a, a bit of a depressing thought but it is what it is but indeed what we have found is that in order to reach the one and a half degree scenario we will need even more removals than we initially thought. Whereas that means for us that the carbon removal business will be much bigger. It's actually very bad news. And <laughs> it's uh, it's bad news. But on the other hand, I hope that's kind of the urgency also urges people to work harder mm-hmm. on reductions.
0: Mm-hmm. And earlier on this podcast, we, we had uh, Jacqueline van Ende, who's, who's founded a fund focusing on uh, companies and, and other funds that, that aim to reduce... Uh, Climate change, and we spoke about the unit of pain per unit of CO two reduced to get a bit of a sense of hey, how can we how can we pick the best way to reduce CO two without causing a lot of pain with the, the populations? And I was wondering, could you elaborate a bit on how DAC compares to CO two reduction in that sense?
1: The way that industry is developing of direct air captures, that right now we are not really putting the burden of removals at the individuals, but more at a company level. So we are targeting mainly larger corporates who have very big net zero ambitions, and we help them achieve, like let's say the last 10 to 15% of emissions because they are just simply not able to reduce them to zero. So in that sense, it does not have at this point a direct impact on individuals. How I could see it in the future that individuals can also reduce their carbon footprint to a certain level, then maybe they are left with like 10 to 15% of emissions that they simply can't produce. And those can then be removed. And that's mainly a financial burden because they will have to pay for CO2 removal.
0: And is it more expensive on average to remove say a ton of CO2 or to reduce in the sense of not emitting it in the first place?
1: so right now as all these removal technologies are in development it is still more expensive to remove as opposed to reduce probably at some point those two are going to balance out and get to the same level and that's also probably the point where further reduction is not possible anymore and the point where you will need uh, removals yeah. Got right. it. okay
0: could you speak a little bit about uh, the capacity of uh, CO2 removal now and also in the future because like we can talk about direct air capture being great and maybe at some point also being cheaper than removal or being the only option when you can't remove anymore but if the capacity is constrained it might also not be a solution so so could you uh, speak a little bit about that both for Recarbon but also for the other players out there?
1: Yeah definitely so From uh, the perspective of the entire industry, Boston Consulting Group recently came out with numbers of where the industry is standing now, what the estimate is in 2030 and in 2050. So right now, in terms of direct air capture, the capacity is below 0.1 megatons, and it will require a scale up of times 160 by 2030, so 60 megatons in total. And then from 2030 to 2050, it will require another scale up to 1.8 gigatons of CO2. So these are very significant uh, steps. But in terms of announced projects in 2030, we are on track to reach the 16 megatons.
0: What are the main challenges on the road to there?
1: Yeah, there are many, I would say, I think mainly in terms of technological challenges of yeah, scaling up these technologies, but also funding is a large challenge. Um, so actually, last year marked, I would say, quite a fundamental year in direct air capture. Uh, there have been very large funding rounds, for example, Climeworks, who raised yeah, around $100 million. The first very large-scale commercial plans have been announced and also have received funding. So it is starting to ramp up, mm-hmm. but it was quite an issue, I would say, until last year. Can imagine.
0: And what do you do with the CO2 that you capture?
1: Yeah, so currently, because we are still, of course, developing our technology, we chose to find a good use case with our pilot plant. So with the pilot plant, we actually were feeding the CO2 to an algal reactor, so, All Guy can actually use the excess CO2 to grow faster. So, it's just like it functions as a fertilizer, essentially. That was a good decision to do at that scale. But now, the next steps we are taking is building a 10 times larger unit. And we will be deploying that unit in Canada together with Deep Sky. And there, actually, we are going to run tests in order to use the CO2 and store it away permanently. So then you are really speaking about a removal because we are capturing it out of the atmosphere, and together with Deep Sky we give it a permanent place, and yeah, this way it will be removed from the atmosphere forever. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And congratulations on the on the partnership, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> um, can you
0: elaborate a bit on your business model, and and if there is a distinction, and maybe also now and later, and uh, maybe the partnership is a good example of that.
1: Yeah. So I think. Similarly to a lot of hardware startups, of course the first couple of years are very focused on developing your technology further, getting to TRL level nine ten. So, for now, our business model is just finding these strategic partnerships, demonstrating technologies together. We are also working on uh, feasibility studies together with clients, where we also help them assess the options for carbon removal. So, that's also part of our business model now. In the future, we see that working is that we are just licensing our technology. So, we will not become a project developer, but we will license our technology to partners like Deep Sky, who are interested in removal, but another important market in the future will also be the use of CO2 and, for example, the conversion to methanol, which can be used for various chemical components, but also materials and even e-fuels.
0: Why the licensing business model? Why not, for example, build the plants yourself and maybe sell the CO2 or even grow what you can grow with the CO2? How did you land on that decision?
1: Yeah, so it's a combination of things, but the main reason is that we want to be able to focus on the technology development now and in the future. And actually, deploying the technology and building these units requires a lot of in house expertise as well. And actually, for that, we see uh, project developers having a much more prominent role. And also, it makes more sense for them to take up these projects because. We are a technology developer, but we are not the project developer.
0: Yeah, makes
1: a lot of sense. Okay, that's super interesting. And
0: could you tell us a bit about how your solution, and your technology, compares to some of the others out there? For example, a, a Carbillon, you mentioned other players already.
1: Yeah, definitely. So. Let's put it this way. You have a very broad landscape of various uh, direct air capture solutions. But if you divide the types of companies that are out there, I would say there are three. So you have much larger ones that are around for a longer time. For example, Climeworks. They are really at a scale with their plants that is like reaching the pre-commercial phase. Then there's the second group of companies that... Do have an idea that has been validated on lab and pilot scale and they are taking the next steps to pre-commercial and then the third category is more really like experimental uh, lab phase. So we fall within that second category. So within that category, there's also various uh, technologies and the way we see it is everyone is working towards the cheapest price per ton of CO2 removed, but there's a lot of external factors that influence that. So for example, some technologies could fit better in very humid environments or in very warm temperatures, whereas other technologies might be better even in freezing temperatures. The truth is we we don't know, but we know that our technology has an energy consumption that is competitive within the second category of companies. And also our design is easy to scale, which is also an important factor to consider.
0: And is energy the main input or are there other inputs that you need for your solution
1: to work? Yeah, yeah. So it's the, the energy demand for us for the unit to operate. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool.
0: And, and for the company, when we, we zoom out a bit again, like what are your top three goals for this
1: year? For this year, the big focus is really making sure that we finish the detailed engineering of this next unit in the next two months. Then we will start the construction of this unit. And then comes the commissioning phase where we will actually start testing the technologies and gather key learnings so that's really the focus for 2024 and then in 2025 we will take those key learnings and start working again on a newer improved unit and also finding um, the ideal location for that unit
0: and how do you what's your role there and how do you uh, operate with the team do you have a super clear division of tasks or is it just everybody runs after different things that they like how do you organize for that
1: <laughs> no, I would say we are pretty organized, but it's also because our co-founder team, we are uh, three together. So I am really more focused on the commercial part of everything. So making sure that we do these feasibility studies, making sure that our brand uh, is built, (laughs) which we're really at the start of, but it's a very important factor. So everything commercial, marketing, business development related. And then Guus and Ewaard, my co-founders, they are really more on the technology side. So that's a very clear distinction. And then between Guus and Ewaard, there is sometimes some overlap, but Ewaard is really in charge of only product development and then Guus is overall CEO. So we do have quite (coughs) distinct uh, backgrounds as well. But I would say some issues, we don't know which category they fall in. So then we just solve it together.
0: (laughs) And how did you go from working as a banker and investor previously to founding ReCarbon? It looks like there's a large, so the delta, a large difference between those roles.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you wouldn't see it like from my CV. (laughs) But the idea of starting a business or working in a startup has really been part of i would say the last years of my studies so i actually did two student boards that were focused on student entrepreneurships and i always loved the idea and kind of the energy of the founders that we met during those years but i was doing econometrics and you know you have this like very traditional career path of either going into consulting or finance and i ended up in finance and whereas i always had the ambition to found a company at some point, also specifically in uh, climate. I also really wanted to get the hands-on experience and be in an environment where I'm just like very much pushed to my limits. And investment banking was a very good environment for that. But I think I realized pretty soon that I wanted to take that step into climate tech, essentially, sooner rather than later. So then I ended up in uh, VC. And the idea was to really start to get to know the landscape better in the Netherlands, specifically what startups are out there, what technologies are very promising. And that's how kind of that search started. And oh, okay. um, yeah. <laughs> this
0: is a, a, a research project to know where to start your venture?
1: <laughs> well... Kind of. I didn't go into it like that. I really imagined myself working in VC for like let's say three years, but then yeah, things accelerated a little right. bit uh, faster than expected.
0: <laughs> and was your interest in uh, climate tech and climate solutions there for a long time already?
1: Yeah, for sure. I can like remember very well that at some point during this student board, we did a social entrepreneurship masterclass event, and I really had a moment where I was like, wow, it's So beautiful to see that these are very good solutions as well, but also I could just see that the people working on the solutions were so impact-driven, and that's really left a mark on me.
0: Interesting. And, And before that, or was it really during that that it sort of sparked in your head and that you wanted to go that direction as well?
1: No, it was definitely only... I think even that specific event, <laughs> I, I think before that I was still in the phase of I don't know what to do and I was studying econometrics. So I was more like, okay, let's just have a good career, but no idea what to do with it yet.
0: It. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. how did you make those decisions the decisions of studying and starting banking, investing? Could you expand a little bit on sort of your, your trade offs? The way you thought about approaching those and then eventually also the decision to to start ReCarbon?
1: Yeah, well, two things. I am a planner. So I think with every career decision I made so far, I had a very good plan in my head. So when I started VC, the idea was to eventually maybe like either as a founder or as an employee end up in a startup. So I think I kind of did crafted in a way to get to this point. But at the moment of the decision making, I have like talked to a lot of startup founders that were looking for a co-founder. I applied for like various accelerator programs as well, even got accepted. So I did do my research. And then at some point actually I met Guus who just was thinking about founding ReCarbon and he was looking for more of a commercial uh, role in the team. And the idea of direct air capture, I already heard about, I think, two years before that. So we just started talking. It really clicked. And then the more and more I learned about the technology of ReCarbon and also the plans that Guus had, the more I realized, OK, this could actually be a very large opportunity. So in that sense, I would say it was kind of a coincidence that we met each other. But I have been crafting the path to meet him.
0: Okay. <laughs> Got it. And, and are you... a planner or is there uh, a lot of room for gut feel and and intuition as well?
1: Oh no, there's a lot of room for for gut feel as well. I think specifically the moment of deciding to join ReCarbon was also a combination of being spontaneous but also uh, planning in the sense that I just said, okay, this idea is really great but we do need a bit more time to assess it, so we actually worked alongside for two months. For me also to understand the idea better and for Guus and I to see, okay, are we going to work well together? And then, so it was a spontaneous decision mm-hmm. to start doing that, but then I do take the time to think about yeah, it. Exactly.
0: So <laughs> You planned your way indeed. Almost yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it was a gut feel decision and then you took two months to basically make sense that you... Validated. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah that, was validated, <laughs> that your brain agreed with... doing Yeah, yeah, job. yeah. That's a yeah, good definitely. combination of the, the two modes. And then um, when you... Look back, what are your highlights so far?
1: I think the past year, we set some goals at the start of the year. So January 2023, the most rewarding feeling was that by the end of the year, we actually reached all of the goals. So I think in the moment itself, you don't really realize it, but then I always start to take a little moment to kind of reevaluate like, okay, what have you actually planned? What did you achieve? And the two biggest things were really getting funding for the idea and being able to get people on board who also believe in it uh, as much as we do. And the other thing is landing a partnership for the next unit, which was really like the biggest commercial goal. And uh, yeah, those were also the two highlights of the mm-hmm.
0: year. <laughs> and, in, and in terms of uh, your day-to-day, how do you feel? What do you love about doing this?
1: That's also a big accomplishment, I would say. So in terms of the specific role I have at Recarbon. It's just a very good personal fit to me as well. So what I loved about investment banking was really the part of speaking to your customers, making sure that that relationship is well-maintained, but also trying to get in new business, presenting new ideas, really the business development part. And then the final thing was the deal-making part. So not only presenting for the business development, but actually landing the deal, doing the contracting. And all those three components I have within ReCarbon, only this time, it's with a bit of a larger purpose. So at some point in investment banking, I felt like really now we are just making already very successful rich companies even more mm-hmm. rich, so to say. And with Recarbon, carbon the overall goal of reducing global warming is just very motivating each day.
0: On the flip side of, of all that, what do you struggle with? What's tough in this role?
1: I think what I've struggled with most is the fact that you you don't have an example in this role. So that sometimes brings a bit of insecurity about certain topics. So I feel like that's a bit of a, it's a steep learning curve as well. So whereas uh, I think a couple months ago, I had some moments where I was like, oh, I'm actually quite unsure. Now I also realize that... I do have a lot of the expertise and experience to make certain decisions. So I think it's a bit like building more confidence in not having that example.
0: Yeah. And deal with that otherwise. Do you also seek advice, for example? Or are you more the kind of person that then really relies on their own decision-making and, and rationale to to make those decisions that you're mentioning?
1: Yeah, I think it's a mix. So for me. Either I am very confident in the decision and I know very well what my arguments are and I'm confident in it, or I have like some sort of doubts and then I go out, start validating with other people. And sometimes, even though I would have validated, I would actually still go with my gut feeling and (laughs) make the same decision. But definitely, so uh, combination.
0: And who are you most influenced by? Do you have any examples in your own life heroes otherwise that that help you do what you do
1: definitely i I would say i have quite a strong support network around me so my partner actually a very big part of my family as well both my dad and stepdad are running their own company for basically their entire career so that definitely helps and the biggest issues we have, I will also always try to discuss with them. And it's just nice <laughs> to be able to talk to people mm-hmm. who have kind of went through similar mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And you, you come across as quite a, a values driven person. You mentioned impact. You mentioned, uh, you are not, not feeling for making those big successful corporations uh, even more successful. Could you tell us a bit more about what your values are and, and how they uh, came about?
1: Yeah. I think I was kind of raised in a way of try to really have a successful career, not necessarily the impact part. So I don't know, just like be ambitious, try to be your best self, stuff like that. But then on the other hand, I was also raised to be very compassionate, I would say, and that's like mainly the maternal part of my family. And then let's say the business part was more like the paternal part of the family. So I think those things like came together very nicely in a way that we are not only focused at recarbon, at making an impact and running the company to the best of our abilities, but I'm also thinking a lot about our own well-being in a way, but also of yeah, the first employees we have. We do have some interns, also future employees, and really thinking like, okay what makes or breaks a company in terms of the employers they have. So what are the companies that have happy employees and what are the companies that don't and what are the factors that influence that? So that also aligns with my values, I would say, to make sure that everyone in the company is also as happy as we are as a co-founder team, essentially.
0: And then your two values can go hand in hand, right? Yeah. (laughs) You get further with a happy team. And what luck did you have in life, would you say, Sophia?
1: Oh, I, I feel like I'm just a very lucky person in general. But sometimes, you know, people would say like, oh, she's so lucky. Like, oh, she, um, I don't know. Like, sometimes you get these comments, right? And then I'm like, okay, but it's not only luck. You also, of course, work for it. But I think just the fact that I was raised in a family with very good role models who were also very supportive of me developing myself, is the best thing that could have happened to me. I think that's where the ball starts rolling, right? You you come from a supportive environment. You do well in school, you do well in university, and then the ball just rolls and rolls in a positive direction. So I think that's my biggest luck. Cool. Thank you for sharing
0: that. And I think uh, like what you're doing is awesome. You've taken the leap and, and started this, this company with a big mission. What do you recommend to people in their 20s that want to be founders as well?
1: I think the biggest recommendation is... If you really want this, start making a very tangible plan. Like it shouldn't just be an idea that's like lingering in your head, but really write it down. That's what I did at some point. I was like, okay, I really want this, but I'm not really taking concrete action. Start making a five year plan. Start writing down what the field of the company would be. What are kind of the main achievements you want to see in five years in the company? How much impact does it have to make? And really try to quantify even some of those things write it down and then start working one step at a time but really do make time for it uh, i feel like a lot of especially people around me who are like oh i actually have like similar ideas i would love to do it i'm like okay just dedicate like 30 minutes of your day every day to work on it and i guarantee that you will take like steps to achieve it further but like don't just let it linger
0: <laughs> Some Is there there anything, uh, as we always wrap up, is there anything that you'd need or would like to ask uh, the audience for, for for the company, for you personally, anything that you're looking out for?
1: Yeah, definitely. For ReCarbon, we will be hiring mainly in the field of engineering very soon. So if you would like to just have an informal chat about that, I'm super open to that always. And people from bigger corporates uh, or companies in the chemical sector, perhaps, that are listening if you are thinking about securing a sustainable CO2 supply for the future, then it's always good to have a chat and see if there are any opportunities there. As we are always just looking for new yeah, new ways to actually use our CO2. Cool.
0: Well, everyone, don't be shy. Reach out to Sophia Hummelmann. She's on LinkedIn and uh, is, is findable on, on many other places and on the Recarbon website as well. So uh, don't hesitate to reach out. And Sophia, before we wrap up, right, do you have any last words or any last uh, recommendations or thoughts you'd want to share with the audience?
1: I hope that the people that are listening are impact-driven as well in their career. <laughs> and if you're not, it's, it's, it's not too late to uh, yeah, try to steer your career in a certain direction to really make a change.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you so much for the time and for being open and uh, sharing everything about ReCarbon, about yourself with us. Best of luck and it was a pleasure uh, talking to you.